Tonight I'd like to continue with talking about the Buddha's uh, discovery of the Four Noble Truths. The other night I stopped at the second, which is the cause of suffering. Fortunately for both the Buddha and us, he didn't stop at the second. He went on and he discovered the third, which is cessation of suffering, which makes it all worthwhile, I guess. And he also discovered the path. The path. It said that he discovered this in one sitting. Um, that's what we call insight. <laughs> of course, the sitting, I think, was 24 hours long, but quite a sitting. Just a review. First noble truth, of course, is the truth of suffering. And for many of us who have been around for a while, it seems like it's a pretty obvious truth. You don't really even have to practice the Dharma to recognize that there's suffering. But to understand in a very deep way the nature of suffering, well, that's a different thing altogether. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes quite a bit of training. Mostly it takes a lot of training because of the way we're conditioned to respond to suffering. You know, we're conditioned to recoil from it, you know, to avoid it, maybe to push it down, maybe we're afraid of our suffering, or you know, sometimes we become indifferent, you know, indifferent to our own suffering, indifferent to others, or maybe even feeling resigned or hopeless to it. And so that kind of contraction around suffering keeps us from understanding it. And so much of practice, so much of training the mind in the heart is learning how to open to our suffering, to begin to take it on, to begin to shift our relationship from recoiling to an openness, you know, an open-hearted meeting of our suffering so that we can learn, so that we can be free from it. Some great Indian sage said that it's the truth that liberates. It's seeing the truth in our experience that's going to free us. And so it's important to begin to look at suffering and to see the truth in it, to see it, to see it for what it is, to see how it manifests in our lives, to see how we run from it, how we react to it. With practice, the mind develops a capacity to be with suffering. And you may have already gotten a taste of that. Some of you who are for the first time on retreat, others who have been on retreat for a while, realize that sitting in retreat quite often means sitting with a certain degree of suffering. It's not always suffering, obviously, but one has to be willing to kind of confront it, to be with oneself. To be in the present moment often means recognizing that one is in a state of conflict or tension. But when the mind becomes a little less reactive, a little bit more silent, and that's what I mean by being silent, not the absence of thought, but the absence of reactivity, the absence of pushing away in experience. When the mind gets, you know, to be able to sit and be with the suffering, or just to simply be with whatever's going on, it begins to learn. It begins to tap in to what's actually happening. And so we gradually begin to learn what the cause of suffering is. Again, the mind gets a little bit more silent, and then we begin to see the nature of suffering. We begin to, to go back 
in, in and through suffering to its source. Begin to recognize what's bringing us the suffering. And slowly what we come to see is that it's the grasping on to experience. It's the grasping on to experience that brings suffering. And why does grasping bring uh, suffering? Well, it brings suffering because we grasp onto things that change. We look for a refuge in things that cannot provide us with a refuge. We're always looking outside ourselves. We're looking at fleeting experiences as though they're going to bring us lasting happiness. And they can't. It's not even personal. It's just that they can't provide us with lasting happiness because they're not around long enough. Even if it feels wonderful and pleasant, it doesn't last. And there's nothing wrong with impermanence. You know, that came up in the group today, just how people don't like impermanence. (laughs) Somehow, you know, something wrong with impermanence. And then someone brought up, which I thought was quite wise, the fact that we do like impermanence when unpleasant things are going on. Uh, So, you know, it's a two-edged sword. I mean, the fact is, uh, pleasant sensations are um, impermanent, and so are unpleasant sensations. That's the nature of things. And there's really nothing we can do about it. But how we relate to those uh, impermanent experiences is what's going to make the difference between whether we suffer or whether we don't. Fortunately, it's within our power to understand our suffering. It's within our power to be liberated from our suffering. It's within our power to not grasp onto experience. Not grasp onto experience. The way we begin to let go is really by developing insight into suffering, insight into the nature of grasping, insight into the nature of our delusion. We begin to see, you know, sitting here, hour after hour, minute after minute, gradually that insight that, you know, every sitting keeps changing. You know, we keep having these different experiences and there's ups and downs and ins and outs and joyful experiences and really down periods. And gradually, the mind starts learning something different because it's paying attention. It starts learning that things do change all the time. When we begin to see that they're changing, we don't grasp on so tight. It's a natural process. It's not something you can force a hurry. It just happens by itself. We begin to see clearly into the nature of our suffering, and so we begin to let go. We begin not to identify with things so strongly. That state of mind that was here at 2.15, it may not be here right now. Is that really heavy duty sleepiness and dullness. For some of you, it may still be here. But there were a lot of moments in between. The process is constantly changing. When we begin to see the impermanence, you know, we begin to let go. And also when we begin, when the mind gets silent enough, it starts to get to know suffering. It develops a more friendly relationship with suffering. It, we develop a more friendly relationship with our own suffering. And we begin to see grasping. We can begin, to, you know, as practice matures, you can begin to really feel what grasping feels like. You know, there's a tension, a heat, 
uh, a holding feeling. There's a tightness in the mind with grasping. No matter what the experience is, when grasping's happening, that's what it is. There's a tightness. We begin to taste that. We begin to feel it. We get, begin to see it quite directly. We see that it's suffering. And we don't want to suffer. Nobody in this room, I'm convinced, wants to suffer. And so gradually we re-educate ourselves. We gradually re-educate ourselves. And so we suffer less. We grasp less. And that's when we start moving into an appreciation of what the Third Noble Truth has to offer. When we begin to develop a certain amount of equanimity in our practice, through seeing impermanence, when we begin to not react so much for or against experience, the mind starts discovering kind of an equilibrium. And this equilibrium, we can begin to taste kind of the freedom in it. There's a tremendous amount of freedom when we can respond to both the pleasant and unpleasant experiences without reacting. It's a wonderful fruit in practice. You know, it's kind of like, whether you know it or not, that's what we're doing here. Is we're learning to practice in a way that uh, allows experiences to come and go without reacting so much for or against the experience and to begin to taste what that's like, you know, that freedom. You know, when we begin to develop that freedom, our happiness becomes less subjected to the changing conditions, to the changing conditions in our sitting practice or our walking practice or in the changing conditions in our life. It's tremendously empowering to taste that freedom, you know, where conditions can be extremely difficult. You know, Narayan talked about her experiences in Thailand, and, and they were very difficult, obviously. And, you know, some of us probably have our own stories. In fact, probably all of us do. You know, where we've been in a situation where the conditions are just horrendous. It may not be, you know, may not be rats and squirrels and... Uh, terrible food, but it could be, you know, someone dying or lots of things going on in our life, experiencing separation and loss. And to be able to be in that experience without checking out, to be fully present in that experience, to be fully available to yourself and to other people without being overwhelmed, without being overwhelmed, in fact, one can even use that experience to grow and to deepen one's understanding of suffering. It's worth the work, you know, to, to, to begin to taste that. It's worth the work. You know, it's the most important work I think we can do is to begin to taste that freedom. Because, you know, if we, we did a compassion meditation a couple of days ago and and if we want to respond with compassion, big part of compassion, big part of being able to respond to compassion is being equanimous, being balanced, being open and non-reactive. 
when we can do that, we can begin to re- respond very spontaneously with compassion. It's no longer an ideal. You know, it's no longer something outside of ourselves, an ideal that we have to attain. But it becomes a natural response to experience. When you get confronted with suffering, and if, when, if we've worked with our own suffering, when you get confronted with suffering, whether it's yourself or someone else, you just respond with more compassion. You recognize the suffering, and it's a very natural response to suffering, is to feel that suffering, to feel that pain. You know, maybe to help carry it some for the person. But you can't do that if you contract it in tight. You can't do that if you haven't faced your own suffering. You can't do that if you're reacting out of fear or anger. Greed. The mind has to be very relaxed and open and balanced. And when the mind's like that, anything is possible. You can deepen your understanding and deepen your liberation under any circumstance. Because this freedom is not conditional. That's the difference. It's the difference. It's not conditional. It, it doesn't depend on things being a certain way. Think about that. It doesn't depend on things being a certain way. It's a tremendous freedom. When pleasant experiences arise, which they do, even for the mind that's fully open, awake, enlightened, you know when pleasant experiences arise, you can enjoy them, you can appreciate them. In fact, you know, when the mind begins to open, the sense doors open. We experience pleasure more directly because the mind is uncluttered. You experience the pleasant sensations and you let them go when they change. There's no need to grasp onto them anymore because you know they don't bring lasting happiness. (coughs) So there's no need to hold on to it. We've cleared up that delusion cleared up that delusion. It's a big one to clear up, but we've done it. You know, once we see. Once we see that it's impermanent. Once we know that it's not a refuge anymore. Once we see that very, very personally and directly for ourselves, we don't get fooled. It's the same with unpleasant experiences. You know, both pleasant and unpleasant experiences are, ne- are, are part of nature. It's part of life. You can't escape life without them. Just part of nature. And it's also not in our control. And so for the mind that's really open, alert, attentive, and compassionate, when unpleasant experiences come up, you feel the pain. You feel the unpleasantness. It's not like this tremendous opening or peace makes you immune to pain. You feel it. You feel the unpleasantness. It feels different than pleasantness. You feel the unpleasantness, but you don't push it away. You don't contract. You stay open. You recognize that it's part of nature. You recognize that it's part of what it means to be living as a human being. You know you don't have to push it away to be happy. And you know that by experiencing it, it doesn't lead to unhappiness. And so you watch it change. You open to it, and it lasts, it may change. Pain may change, it changes in intensity, and you let it go. 
when it changes. Of course, that takes an extremely balanced, well-trained mind. Very well-trained mind. You have to earn it. You have to earn that. Another thing that we, another force, another form of suffering that we begin to let go of in this freedom, this poise, this openness, this silence, begins to release our heart. Our hearts are so constricted, you know, out of fear. We begin to let go of what Narayan said the other night, which was the torments of the heart. The things that torment torment us. Greed, hatred and delusion. Those are the three torments of the heart. Those are the kalesas. When we begin to see the impermanent nature of things, when we open to the truth, the way things are, we begin to let go of that reaction, that conditioned response of greed to pleasant. We begin to let go of that conditioned response of aversion. We begin to let go of that conditioned response of not looking, of not paying attention, of delusion, of confusion. And we begin to see things as they are. And we begin to relax very deeply. Very deeply. Greed, hatred, and delusion keeps us out of balance. That grasping keeps us out of balance. And you know, when we begin to taste balance, we begin to, to uh, prefer it, really. Want it. You see that it's possible to have a happiness that's within you. It's not outside of you. It's within all of us. And it's really a question of clearing away the obscurity, clearing away the ignorance, clearing away the greed, hatred, and delusion. The conditions us so deeply. And when we clear it away, we have that clear mind. That crystal clear seeing, that openness to the way things are. We learn to rest more deeply. We begin to relax into the present moment. What we discover, the third noble truth, is we discover a lasting refuge. A refuge that doesn't arise and pass away. A refuge that doesn't arise. It's not impermanent. It's a different nature than the impermanent experiences that we see coming and going. It's there all the time. We just need to clarify our minds and hearts to see it. It doesn't arise and pass away. It's there. We just don't see it. But when we see it, it becomes a true refuge. Deep, silent refuge. One that is not dead. You know, it's, it's alive. It's, it's energy. It's a source. Tremendous power you know, within that silence. It's not indifference. It's not detachment or distance. It's completely present. The danger in talking about the third noble truth or to talk about 
this kind of freedom is that, you know, a lot of us aren't experiencing that from one moment to the next. And it's quite easy, as you begin to practice, to, to attach to a particular idea. You know, it could be the model of enlightenment, model of freedom. And it's very important not to attach to that idea. It's very important to, to let, it, let, it, uh, let it in, that possibility, to let that possibility in. And it's not a belief that it exists, but more it's important to recognize as we practice, freedom is occurring. You know, if we can begin to taste the direction that practice goes in, we can begin to you know, recognize, instead of always judging or condemning our practice, if we can begin to recognize that there's a certain amount of freedom that's occurring, and there's some freedom occurring in this room. You know, I come in at 6.15 tonight you know, and sit with you for 45 minutes. I feel it. You know, I feel the minds are training themselves. That there's more silence. It's quieter. It's deeper. The energy has changed. That's the direction practice goes. It doesn't mean that it's always blissful because that's not what's going on out there at 6.15 either. But there's something changing. There's something happening. There's some kind of transformation. And when we begin to recognize that, when we begin to taste it, 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 you know, it builds faith, confidence. That's where faith and confidence in practice comes, from tasting freedom. And just to know that if one continues, the freedom continues and deepens. It becomes more subtle. It's a process. It's a lifetime process of freeing oneself. And so if we attach to a particular idea, you know, we, our life closes down. Things, things tighten up. We start comparing. We get caught in the grasping. We're back into the second noble truth. Grasping. Even grasping onto enlightenment or some idea of enlightenment is suffering. So learning to just be with the present moment. You know, that's, that's, that's where it's happening. That's where freedom is happening. It's happening in the, in, in the present moment. Each moment that you're mindful and alert and attentive, you're freeing yourself. You're freeing yourself from the calaces. You're freeing yourself from grasping because you're not doing what you're conditioned to do, which is to grasp, to react. So each moment of mindfulness is liberating us, whether we see it or not. We're doing something different. We're deconditioning that very uh, strong conditioning uh, that tells us to grasp onto experience. You know, we're told that right from the very beginning that happiness is out there. And so mindfulness begins to transform that and to change that. So then finally we get to the fourth. And the fourth is really what we're doing you know, with our practice. We're practicing the Eightfold Path. Practicing really, uh, our practice here is really based on the Buddha's insight. His insight uh, that evening, his insights that he, that he came upon in 45 years of teaching. And we're engaged in that same practice. You know, it's amazing. 2,500 years later with all the changes, I mean, just tremendous changes in the world. I mean, inconceivable changes. And yet we're doing the same practice that he was doing and they were doing 2,500 years ago. And, you know, seeing if it's still relevant, seeing if it's still 
uh, still leads to inner freedom. There are three aspects of the Eightfold Path. This is the path to freedom. There are three aspects. First aspect is sila, or ethical action. Second aspect is samadhi, which is meditative training, which is what we're engaged in in a very intensive way. Training the mind, focusing the mind, trying to be as continuously mindful as possible. That's the second aspect. And then the third aspect is wisdom. It's the... it's the fruits of the training. It's the fruit. It's the seeing. It's the seeing that leads to liberation. These three aspects, sila, samadhi, panya, ethics, samadhi practice, wisdom, they're very interrelated, but they don't sort of go sequentially. It's like it takes a certain amount of wisdom, for instance, to begin to look at one's ethical conduct, to begin to look at one's ethical action. If we lack wisdom, well, then we're much more likely to uh, uh, you know, act in very unskillful ways. In Buddhism, ethical behavior is based on pretty much one principle, which is the principle of non-harm. Looking at our actions from a perspective of non-harming. That's what we mean by skillful. Skillful skillful action is actions that don't harm others, maybe even help. And there are different parts of uh, sealer, ethical actions. There's wise action, which is, we talked about the precepts at the beginning of this retreat, and it's it's possible to practice the precepts, not just here, but in everyday life. And it really, it's a very rich practice. They're not commandments. Precepts are not, you know, rules in that sense. You know, they're not commandments, they're not coming down from somebody, but rather they're really a, a rich mindfulness practice. It's a way, guidelines, ways to, to look at actions, maybe to, to slow yourself down, to question what you're doing, and to, and to look at the consequences of your actions. That's the benefit of, of taking the precepts, of looking at the precepts and reflecting on them. And the precepts, of course, under wise action are not killing, stealing, not stealing, uh, not engaging in sexual misconduct, uh, uh, not engaging in false speech and the misuse of intoxicants. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, a, with politics very much, but there was a politician who grew up and lived in Cambridge, Mass., and, and this politician was named Tip O'Neill. Uh, he was Speaker of the House, I think, in the 70s and the 80s. I'm not sure how long he was a speaker. And um, anyways, I, I uh, had a lot of affection for him. I didn't really follow politics much then. I, was, I guess I was kind of busy with the Dharma and stuff. And, and uh, I wasn't really up on you know who were the local politicians and what was going on. But I knew he was a liberal politician, you know, kind of in the, that tradition. And uh, I remembered seeing a, a picture that was plastered on the newspapers on the front page. I think it was when Ronald Reagan was giving uh, the State of the Union speech or something, some really important speech. And he was sitting behind him and he was dead asleep. <laughs> and his head was like hanging to the side. And, you know, I've watched that when I give talks sometimes. Uh, but, but to see that, you know, 
you know, in this kind of situation, it was very funny, and I thought it was great. Um, <laughs> so, and he had a very, very good sense of humor, too, which I appreciated. He was very local. He was, even though he was a very important national politician, he really kept to his local roots. And then, uh, I think he died about, how many years ago? Maybe five or six years ago. Maybe it's even more than that by now. Like longer. Um, and of course, you know, being in, Bo- being in Boston, being in Cambridge, it was all over the papers for several days. You know, a lot of testimony to, to Tip and a lot of personal stories about his life and who he was and how he lived it from a day to day. And it was an interesting life. And they interviewed like his barber, the local barber. They cut his hair and a lot of the, a lot of the locals at the you know corner pub and things like that, places where he hung out. Um, and you really got a sense of who he was you know, as a person, really on a day-to-day basis. And he had a lot of wisdom, too. I mean, he had a lot of, uh, you know, he was a pretty reflective person, very sensitive in some ways, anyway. And what they did was they printed, apparently he had his own set of precepts. Um, they weren't all Buddhist precepts, but he had his own set of precepts, and they printed, I think it was like 10, his 10 precepts. And one of the precepts that caught my attention anyways, is he said, he said, you know, always tell the truth because that way you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> that way you don't have to remember anything. You can just forget it. You know, and to me that was real insight into how complicated life can get. Uh, when we start acting unskillfully, you know, when we start, you know, lying or, you know, doing a lot of stuff that we know we shouldn't be doing, um, you know, life gets complicated. It becomes a burden. And the interesting thing about the precepts and the interesting thing about ethical conduct in general is uh, just to see how liberating it can be. You know, even though at times it, you know, one needs to exercise restraint, uh, you, know, you have something to, to bounce off of. You, um, um, it's, it, what I've certainly seen is that it's extremely helpful, very liberating. The mind, you know, it's very difficult to experience calm you know, if we're engaged in a lot of unskillful actions. And so wise action... And, and then there's wise speech, which is uh, speak, the second one is, is not speaking falsely, uh, not, not engaging in slander or harsh speech, you know, backbiting, gossip, you know, all the stuff that we do um, every once in a while. Uh, wise speech is learning how to restrain yourself from doing that, really investigating that whole area of speech. It's a tremendous practice, and it's a practice you can do in your daily life, you know, just being mindful and quiet and observing what comes out of our mouths. I mean, it's... A, fascinating. And, it, and speech can really become like a mirror into yourself, into your heart, you know, into, into your mind. It reflects back to us what's going on. You know, so why speech? Um, and then wise livelihood. In, in Buddhist time, uh, what was considered unwise livelihood was weapons trade and slavery. Uh, those are kind of two very unwise livelihoods. Um, we don't have to worry about that. Um, but Wise livelihood also means just essentially trying to be mindful when you're working, trying to be mindful of the consequences of your actions while you're working, you know, really getting sensitive and and bringing practice into that whole realm of life. Very, very important. You know, we begin to work with the integration of practice with action, you know, with, with livelihood. We begin to take the practice into those situations. It's very liberating. It's an important part of the path doesn't just happen on retreat, as I'm sure you know. Then we move into mental or training, meditation, training the heart, training the mind. 
And you've heard us speak a lot about effort, and that's because effort is crucial on the path. At the beginning, nothing happens without a certain amount of effort. There are different kinds of effort, and effort changes too. The need for different kinds of effort. It's very interesting to see in one's practice. Sometimes at the beginning of a retreat, it takes tremendous effort to sit there, to try to sit there quietly. And then after a while, with some training, you know, we've been sitting for a few days. It gets a lot easier to sit quiet. It doesn't take as much effort. But then, you know, we sit there and we've kind of got our habits down and we know our routine and we give ourselves a certain amount of time to fantasize and a certain amount of time to observe pain and a certain amount of time to plan lunch. And, you know, it, it, we get into our little habits and sitting becomes a little easier and then we'll spend five minutes really trying to pay attention hard and then we give up after a while and we say, forget it, and it's too hard, and I've done my work, and, and, and I want to do balanced effort. I don't want to strive too hard. <laughs> um, so I need to ease up. And, you know, it takes knowing the kind of effort that it takes. Uh, very important in practice. Very important in practice. Yes, the a- effort needs to be balanced, but it's, it's uh, a combination of being allowing and accepting, but also being very persevering. As, as I'm sure you're discovering, it takes a lot of perseverance to do it. And the effort, of course, isn't uh, directionless. You know, it's not just effort. You know, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not just trying. You know, it's. It's the effort is really to cultivate certain qualities. And what we're cultivating is a degree of stability of mind, of concentration, which is another uh, one. One of the aspects of, of the Eightfold Path is concentration. And it really retreats are, are a condition where concentration sometimes can develop you know, stronger than a daily practice. Um, so we're, we're putting our effort into focusing the mind, and at the same time, we're uh, putting effort into being mindful. That's really the most important effort that you can make uh, on this retreat, is to simply be mindful of what your experience is. Because once again, mindfulness is the key. It opens the door. It allows us to know what we're doing. And then we can make certain choices. We can take skillful actions. It gives us a basis to move from. When we know what we're experiencing, when we're open to it, then we can make choices. Oh, I need to sit still for a little longer. I need not to keep moving my shoulders because that's creating restlessness. You know, I need to go for a longer walk. I need to walk outdoors because I need energy. You know, mindfulness is letting you know, really beginning to guide you in the right kind of choices, the kind of choices that are going to help bring your mind to balance. Mindfulness is a real balancer, and that's where we're putting our effort. Not in having a particular experience, but the effort is to be present, to be attentive, to be mindful, and to begin to notice the changing nature of experiences. If we're not mindful, we won't see that. It's really that simple. You won't see impermanence unless you pay attention. And it's mindfulness is that innate capacity that everybody in this room has to pay attention. All of us in this room, and even everybody out there too, has that capacity. But it definitely takes a certain amount of repetition or training, or reminding oneself to keep coming back. And then the mindfulness gets stronger with practice, and then once again, it doesn't necessarily take as much effort to remember to be mindful once the mindfulness gets stronger. We begin to remember it. Some of you may have already noticed that, that you start remembering to come back to the breath, that you start remembering that, oh, I'm walking, oh, I'm reaching for that cup of tea. You know, we become, we, we, we become more present 
in a more natural way. We're not always just trying. But sometimes at the beginning it takes a lot of trying. It takes some effort. Finally, finally we come to <clears throat> the last aspect of the Eightfold Path, which is wisdom, the fruit. Wisdom is seeing things as they are. That's the fruit. Seeing things as they are. Being with things fully, exactly as they are. Wisdom is composed of two different aspects also in this Eightfold Path. One is wise view. There are different levels to wise view. One is the mundane and one is the super mundane. Mundane is... And even though it says mundane, it sounds kind of maybe not so important, but it actually is very important, is wise view uh, is the wisdom that comes when we begin to see that our actions have consequences. It's extremely important to begin to see that your actions have consequences and the kinds of thoughts that you cultivate, you know, kinds of forces, inner forces that you cultivate, you know, whether they're... Uh, healthy and skillful, or whether they're unskillful, you know, what, what, we, what we cultivate um, matters. You know, that, that what, how we act matters. It has consequences. It bears fruit. So that's on the mundane level, very important. And you can see how that kind of pl- that wisdom plays back into practice, you know, co- plays back into uh, to ethics. Seeing that our actions have consequences and realizing that peace really comes from living in harmony with the way things are. When we begin to learn that we're part of nature, we we begin to live in harmony with that fact. The super mundane is is when we begin to see into the true nature of experience, which, of course, I'm sure you know by now is impermanent. We're talking a lot about that. It's also understanding suffering deeply, understanding suffering and its nature why it arises, how it arises, how it expresses itself, seeing very deeply into that nature of suffering. Finally, wise intention, a wise thought. This is an important aspect because this is when we begin to align our lives and in, in, in our perspective, all that. We begin to align ourselves with what is true, what, what, what we're seeing. You know, we be, Wise intention has sort of three areas that the Buddha identified. One is the area of renunciation. Looking at renunciation as an intention. Another area is goodwill. Learning to cultivate intentions of goodwill. Finally, cultivating the intention, uh, intentions which are governed by harmlessness. Goodness, harmlessness, not harming others. We're cultivating those intentions in one's life. And the way we cultivate those intentions, of course, is uh, in renunciation, we might, we might see the wisdom of restraint or the wisdom of simplicity sometimes. It also means abandoning greed. You know, beginning to see impermanence, we begin to let go of greed. And when greed is the intention, you know, is underneath our intention, we get ourselves in lots of problems. We get, get ourselves in a lot of trouble. 
wise intention is goodwill, and the opposite, of course, unwise intention is ill will. You know, hatred. When we feed hatred, when we come from a place of hatred, we bring suffering. Unwise intention, what follows unwise intention is suffering. And uh, wise intention is the third, is governed by harmlessness. And the opposite, of course, is harming, the intention to harm and to hurt. And all of us here, I'm sure I have no problem at all recognizing that. If we act or if we come from an intention to harm or hurt, um, we suffer in the per- and, and we, we create suffering for others. And so that's a level of wisdom. That's, that's an aspect of wisdom, is learning to discriminate. It's an important part of wisdom. Wisdom is not just seeing impermanence. It is. It's a big part, is seeing impermanence. But in our everyday life, not only do we have to see impermanence, we have to act. We have to speak. We have to learn how to discriminate between what is skillful, i.e., leads to freedom, and what is unskillful, what leads to suffering, and that's why practice is a lifetime. You know, it's always revealing itself. We see ourselves. When we, when we develop wisdom, when we begin to become more equanimous and more balanced, uh, we begin to see when we act out or when we start acting unskillfully. And we can correct that. And we can correct that. We don't go so far down that road. And we don't suffer as much. And that's the wisdom of discrimination. That's where freedom lies, when you begin to see what leads to suffering and what doesn't. For yourself, when you're convinced, when you see exactly in the moment what leads to suffering and what doesn't, then you've tasted dharma. That's when you taste the fruit. That's the fruit of the dharma. Because you can really rest in that place. It's freedom. There's nothing more to do. Okay, could we... Sit for a minute or two. all beings see into the nature of suffering. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free from all forms of suffering. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.